Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your great, great love for us, and the lengths that you would go to show that, to display it, that we can't earn it because you did, God. Thank you, Lord. I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us through your word, that you would show us more of who you are, or that you would show us your glory and that we'd be that we would dare to even want to see more of it, God. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds in these next moments here. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. As you pull out your bulletins and your outlines, we are in our series in the book of Mark, talking about who is Jesus. And really getting into more of uh, this, this amazing, amazing biography that a guy named Mark wrote about Jesus. Mark was a friend of Peter's. And uh, Peter told Mark all the things that he saw. Mark wrote it down in his own dramatic, pretty cool way, I think. And uh, now we get to read this biography that we call the Gospel of Mark. The good news that Mark wrote about Jesus. And today we have a wild story as things are going to start uh, like the, the sort of the miracles are going to start getting grander and bigger. And you have to step in your mind back a little bit to be thinking about as someone who's never seen this before, okay? You've never read this story before. And try and be one of the disciples who have no idea what's about to happen. But as we get into that story, you know, we're thinking about, uh, uh, it's really around these three questions. And if you've got uh, your outline out, you can peek ahead and see those questions, but they're going to come out in the text. And these are questions that I want for us to be uh, sort of self-evaluating, assessing questions as we go through this. And as I uh, thought about them and reflecting on them, I think about these sort of self-reflection processes that we go through in this life where we take these assessments and tests. And many of you sort of love doing these sorts of things, you know, personality inventories or spiritual gifts assessments. I've done a lot of those and being, I don't know if it's working in a church, you tend to do a lot of these things or in leadership or in team building kind of, you know, moments at, at some sort of work thing where you're taking the Myers-Briggs or the Strengths Finder or DISC or just one of the many, many other that there are, reflecting on the gifts that, that you're trying to have an understanding of what God has given you. And as we do those, I mean, I, I tend to be the kind of person that enjoys those. Some people find them painful, but, you know, I think they're, they're good for us in the sense that as we begin to know ourselves better, we can also begin to understand how we relate to God or to know God more and what are those things that are kind of hanging hanging us up, right? Kind of hindering us from being able to understand and know fully who God is. But then also as we know more of who God is, even more so we can get to know who we really are in Him. And so it's important. It's good for us to reflect and evaluate. So we'll get to these questions, but first I want us to get into the story. The story of Mark Four, and uh, it's a pretty crazy story uh, when we step back and think about it. So if you haven't yet, turn in your Bible to Mark 4, 35. Uh, and as you do, uh, I'll just kind of read the first, first few words. Because it says, on that day when evening came. On that day. So what day? Well, it's the same day that we've been in for the past 
couple Sundays. Obviously, last week we had a special Mother's Day message. A couple weeks before that, we talked about the parable of the soils and the sower, the four different soils and all that, all these different soils. And then we talked about seeds. We talked about parables about seeds that were planted and then they grew and they don't know how, or a mustard seed and how it spreads. Jesus has been teaching from a boat by the lake of the Sea of Galilee, and he's been teaching all day, and now it's time to go. Okay, so it says, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let's go over to the other side. Now you can see on the screen here, I realized I laid a picture of the Sea of Galilee on the top of a picture of the Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of a double thing you got here. But uh, this is the Sea of Galilee, and we're on this side, what we think of as sort of the the Jewish side, and they were going to go over to the other side, which was the Gentile or the Roman side, the side of the Decapolis, which were these ten Roman cities. And this is not this not a place that the Gentile or that the Jews were even really supposed to go. It's where the prodigal son went. The prodigal son went over there, most likely is what we think, and went and was living kind of in the lavish uh, lifestyle. This is a picture of one of those Decapolis cities called Beit Shean or Scythopolis. And you could see where just for people from a small, tiny fishing village, if they were to go over to the other side, they'd have Roman theaters and bathhouses and all of this uh, entertainment and luxury. And that would be very different than the sort of lifestyle that they are living. Okay, so that's where they're heading over to the other side. And, and really, something significant is, is happening as they go over to the other side. There's going to be a story that happens uh, on the other side that we'll get to in the following weeks. And there's this, there's this mission, though, of Jesus not only being there on the Jewish side, but the gospel going to the Gentiles, which then was this Roman city, which as we just talked about that whole mustard plant, where mustard plants grow like wildfire, they just spread like crazy. And so he goes across to these Roman cities and it's going to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so it's very cool to kind of see how all of this is, is playing into this. But now that's not something that the enemy, that Satan would want to have happen. So we believe that there's then opposition. But let's continue in our, in our text. So verse 36. Uh, leaving the crowd... They took him along with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. All right, so they're going across in the boat. Rembrandt, just kind of a typical uh, look, painting, kind of image of what we have of this story of just this one single boat out there in the middle of this crazy storm on the lake. But then you notice there's some additional details. It says other boats were with him. I don't know, for me, some reason, over the course of my life, I've not really imagined it that way, that there was a bunch of other boats out there as well. And there's other detail mentioned in this story, and it's part of even why like, we, we really can get a sense uh, and really help people understand that this isn't some legend. This is a true story. There's detail to it, okay? And that's, that's a part of the aspect of this kind of writing. And so they went out. Other boats were with them, but this is on the screen here. You see... Uh, they actually have found, uh, in sort of recent years, a first century boat that was in the mud, and so it was preserved in this mud. And they were able to bring it out and to restore it as much as they could. But it kind of gives you maybe a little bit better a sense of the size, that they're not a very big 
boat. So these guys are out there in these small fishing boats, and they're about to run into uh, some bad weather, right? Verse 37, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Okay, so these guys are out there in this small boat with these other people. They've got Jesus with them in the boat, and they're out, and then this storm comes. Now, what, what happens, this is actually a picture of the Sea of Galilee, uh, of an old storm. This is a more recent picture. I mean, this looks like an awesome place to surf, and this is on a lake, okay? This is a lake. This is a, uh, a lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. You can see Mount Arbel. We climb up that on our trips. But uh, you can see Mount Arbel in the distance. And so this is the Sea of Galilee. That what can happen here is you've got uh, these steep, this is a big lake. You've got these steep cliffs, these uh, canyons, these valleys where air, cold air comes in, hits the warm air, and it can cause quick storms. Quick storms can come and you can get waves like this on a lake. And so that's kind of what we think maybe they're up against, but there's maybe more to it than we realize. So they're out there and this big storm comes and it's hitting them. Now, what, one thing for us to kind of get our heads into the disciples' minds a little bit is that in this time, these people lived in the first century, swimming is not a recreational activity, okay? This is not something that people did. They don't go swimming. Even these people who are fishermen, we think have a fear still of water because in their, in this sort of the mindset of the gods and the, the Greek and Roman mythological gods and all of that, the, the sea or the depths were considered the place of chaos and evil and, you know, it's this kind of a symbol of sin and fear is all wrapped up into this notion of the storms and the seas. Like the, when a storm would come, you're trying to get somewhere. A storm comes when you're trying to get somewhere. It's like the gods are angry, right? And that means you shouldn't go on this journey. It's sort of this mindset that one would have in that time. But um, even, you know, even Peter... It's a, it's, a, it's a different story, but the story where Jesus is walking on water, and then Peter has this amazing thing where he comes out and he walks on the water himself, which we'll get to that story at some point. But he then sees the wind and he gets scared and he starts to sink. Now, if I, if I was walking on water, as, as, you know, we do, right? You know, when, when I'm walking on water, uh, you know, when I'm walking on water and get scared and begin to sink, I just think, okay, well, I guess I sink and now I swim, right? You know, I mean, it's just no, no big deal. But, uh, you know, he's terrified and says, Lord, save me. And Jesus has to grab him and pull him back in to the boat. Uh, so we don't even know if, like, Peter as a fisherman could swim. But I want you to get your head in there. I want you to get your mindset into the boat. You're in this boat the storm comes. You're scared. You don't know what's going on. You're, you're afraid of death. You're afraid of dying. You don't, you don't think God is even pleased with what you're doing. Now we're at verse 38, and we see what Jesus is doing as the boat is filling with water. Jesus himself was in the stern, the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. We'll get to the end in a moment here. But this is just 
This amazing thing is happening in this part of the passage. As Jesus is just asleep, and they get up, and they yell, they, they're, they're, they're angry, they're afraid, they think he doesn't care about them, and he gets up, and it says he rebukes the wind, and then he says, hush, be still to the sea. Now, something I want you to get here as we kind of just do some of this background part, okay, is what he is doing here, what the kind of language he is using here is what we would maybe call exorcism language, okay? It's the same language that Jesus uses when he's speaking to demons. And you can see some of those examples up here, Mark 1, 25, Mark 9, 25, Luke 4, Luke 9, some of these other situations where Jesus is speaking to a demon. It says he rebukes the demon, and he says, hush, be quiet, be still, come out of him. It's the same kind of language, exactly, that happens in a few of the different sort of exorcism stories. And so that's why what we think is going on here is actually something much more than just a storm. Something much more than kind of a random weather pattern happening here in the Sea of Galilee. Because I think when Jesus is on this mission to go across the lake, to go to the other side, to do what he wants to do on the other side, you're going to see he's going to involve some demons in the next story. And really then taking the gospel to the Gentiles and for it to spread like wildfire amongst the Roman Empire, that is something that Satan wants to stop. And so you have actually here demonic opposition, okay? Demonic opposition to what's happening. And it's it's pretty radical of the language that Jesus is using here to to rebuke. That's not something you think about, right? If it's really windy out and you're like, I rebuke the wind, right? That's not how we normally think of just wind. We want the wind to stop, (laughs) you know? Like, well, wind stop is what we would think of. But Jesus rebukes it and Jesus tells the sea to be quiet, Same things he says to the demons. And the disciples probably are in this boat thinking they're going across this lake and the storm comes. What we need to do is wake up Jesus so that we can turn around, okay? So that we can turn around and go back or that Jesus can help us bail water out of this thing because we're sinking. And then Jesus does this and Jesus rebukes the wind and then it actually does stop. And that's what I meant by getting your head into that. For you to get your head into them, <laughs> a situation where you've never heard this story before, and you're a disciple, and you're in this boat, and you see him tell weather to change, and it does. That's radical. And then it begins to look like this. Just perfectly calm. Perfectly calm and still and serene. And then our story continues a bit more. It says... Jesus uh, becomes a little different than the compassionate, mild-mannered Jesus that some of us might think he is. In verse 40, it says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then it says this, They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus calls them out. Jesus rebukes the sea, and then he rebukes them, and we'll get into that a little bit more as we think about these questions. But it's pretty cool, like in this story, there's this Greek root, Greek word megas, which is just the word mega. When you think of like a mega store, right, or megatron, or anything like that, right? Mega is big. And there is a, first of all here, a mega storm in verse 37. That's what it says. But then it says that when Jesus rebukes it, it becomes mega calm, 
And then the disciples are afraid, and Jesus says, why are you afraid? And then it says they became mega afraid, <laughs> okay? And that's what's going on with these, these poor disciples are mega afraid in this moment because they are confronted with Jesus who is, I mean, they're just thinking like, who is this guy? He's done some pretty Maybe some amazing things to us. He's cast out demons. He's healed people. He's preaching with authority. But now he has control over the weather. And they're just thinking, who is this? And they've been with him. And that's why our series is called this, Who is Jesus? The disciples in the boat are asking it. People all around were saying, you know, who, do you, you know, who are people saying that this Jesus is? And Jesus asks the very question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And in this passage, we see Jesus as the one who, when, when it's all kind of swirling and chaos and, and, and everything is the, the time of the storm, and if all of that is supposed to symbolize evil and the fallenness of creation, Jesus steps up and says, I am the Lord of creation. I made the sea. I calm the sea. I have power over demons. I have power over storms. I have power over everything. Who am I? I'm the one with authority over the weather, authority over supernatural forces, and I am the creator of the heavens and the earth, standing in a boat with you guys while you thought you wanted me to help you bail water. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think at some level we can laugh at them, but also laugh with them. Because I think we can go there pretty quick. I know I can myself. But that's who this Jesus is for them. And now we get then into these, these other just kind of like vital questions, I think, for us that are asked in this passage, either by Jesus or by the disciples. In the midst of all of this that's happening, there's, there's these questions that are asked. I think are very, very relevant for us today and as we reflect and as we assess. And the first is such a question, a commonly asked question, does Jesus care? Does God care? These disciples, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you know we're dying here, Jesus? Don't you care? How can you just be asleep? What's going on? Like, we need you. Why don't you care about us? And I think that's the, the heart of the emotion of this passage is this very moment where these, these men who are in this boat with him just think that he is asleep and doesn't care. And that is such a common question for us to ask in the midst of the storms and the darkest moments of our lives. We think about our own personal moments of failure, the ways that we blow it and we think, does God still care about me when I fail? Or the moments where we've been betrayed by someone and we think, God, do you, do you even care about me that this could happen? Those moments for us where we just, we feel like God is silent and we feel like God's not there and we just wonder, Jesus, do you care? Do you care about me? The moments of loss or death in our lives, it's so easy for us to ask, Jesus, do you, do you still care? Or, or those moments that we're afraid or, or we have doubts and we think, Jesus, are you even there? Do you care? Are you, are you asleep, God? 
Where are you, Lord? We need you, and it feels like you're not there. And sometimes it feels wrong for us to even ask that sort of question or if it's okay for us. Because it takes some guts for these disciples to wake up their leader, to shake him up and say, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Don't you care? They question his heart right to his face. This one that's been teaching with authority. This one that's been showing them the way. And they question his heart. And I think that this is where that exorcism language is also important. That I think these disciples are also under attack. That these doubts that are coming into their mind, that the ways they're questioning if God cares about them or is really listening or even who Jesus actually is, they're questioning all of it in that moment because they're just as under attack as the boat is. And when Jesus rebukes the wind, he's rebuking the demons and then he rebukes these, these friends of his for that. But I think, you know, do we give Jesus the authority in our lives to fix things, not in the way that we want him to, but in the way that he wants to. I think often we give demands to Jesus in our prayers rather than asking questions of him or asking him for help. We'll give, we'll give demands or we think, you know, because I think these disciples, they're kind of like, wake up, turn the, help us turn the boat around. Can we just find out that it's okay to turn around? Can you help us bail water? Can you help us in the midst of this moment? And he has so much more for them. I feel like we keep saying this in this series, right? They expected this, but he had so much more for them. And he did, and he does, and he does for us still today. For us to open our hearts to how Jesus can work in the midst of our dark moments. And to maybe also be okay when he calls us out for our questioning. Because he is about to call them out really hard. And I want to show you how he does it in a moment, but I also want you to know that he's not asleep <laughs> in the sense of being absent from them. He's there. He's there with them. And he's got it. You know, he's, sure, he's resting, but he's had a long day of preaching. I get that. Afternoon naps are very important after a long day of preaching. I can relate to Jesus in that way. So he's having his time of rest, but, you know, he's, he's just, he's still there. He's in the midst of it. And sometimes when we feel like God is silent or God is absent, he's there with us, but he's, he can rest because he's got it under control, right? There's nothing for him to fear. He's got this. And so he knows that it might be a hard moment, though, for us, but he's present with us. Back in the, in, uh, early in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you have Abraham. Abraham married to this woman, Sarah. That was where the line was supposed to continue through them. And it will. But in the midst of there's this promise of children that are not coming. And so then Abraham kind of takes matters into his own hands. He has another wife named Hagar. Now Hagar is, he's this concubine. Hagar uh, has a child named Ishmael. Now Sarah does not like Hagar or Ishmael. Sarah's jealous. Sarah's upset about all this. And so Sarah wants to get rid of them and cast them out. And she does, even a couple times. And in the midst of all of that, God appears to Hagar. And God gives a promise to her as well. And then in the midst of all of that, of, of her receiving this promise from God, she says this. It says in Genesis sixteen thirteen, Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. 
Our God is a God who sees. And so if you're in those moments that are dark, you're in those moments of betrayal or those moments of failure or those moments of loss or those moments of fear, your God is a God who sees. Sometimes it's hard to see that God sees when we're in the middle of a dark moment. Even for Abraham and Sarah, I mean, they received this promise, and it was decades later that the promise was fulfilled. So you might feel like God's not working, but recognize God is still at work, but he's not working in your timeline. God is there. God is present. God is with you. Does Jesus care? Absolutely he cares. He's with you. And so I want you just to consider that and open yourself to the fact that he is with you even in the moments where you don't see. And so we ask God to help us to look at life storms not as disasters, but as opportunities to see God's transforming power at work in our lives. Does Jesus care? Absolutely. He's there with them, but it's all different. And then we get to this this next question of why Am I afraid that you can ask of yourself as you self-reflect? Why am I afraid? Because Jesus asks them the question. He said to them, why are you afraid? Now I got to tell you how this question is different than what you might think just on the surface of what it sounds like. Um, This question is is really, is a very, very intense question. Why are you afraid? It actually is, is a different form of fear in the Greek. This is one of those opportunities that I think understanding the the Greek or the original language really helps. And because even the word, these couple of different words uh, in the Greek for fear are here in the same text. What Jesus says when he says, why are you afraid? He uses this Greek word delos, which actually is cowardliness. Why are you being cowards? Why are you cowardly? That's more than just kind of a, a fear of the storm. Because later, even when it says they became very much afraid, it was megaphobos. Phobos, fear, phobia. It's maybe a more commonly used one, right? Phobia. Now, this, is that, this can be either fear, terror, or reverence. It's reverence. It's awe, like awestruck by something, okay? Now, this whole word delos, cowardly, it's only used in this story. In the Bible, it's used three times. Right here in Mark in the same exact story told in one of the other Gospels, okay? And then it's used in Revelation 21, verse 8. And this is why I think this is one of the biggest sort of rebukes that these disciples could ever receive. Revelation 21, verse 8. It's just done talking about the new heaven and new earth that will come. And then at the final judgment, it says this, But for the cowardly, delos... The only other place in the Bible this word's used. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, we just thought, you know, things escalated quickly, right? Like we're being called cowards here, and the only other place it talks about this kind of cowardliness is in those that will go into the lake of fire at the final judgment, along with, you know, all, all these other just, just unbelievable sins. And, and so Jesus is saying, why are you being cowards? You still don't get it? You still don't understand what's happening? He rebukes the sea. He rebukes the disciples. Now, this is, 
this sense where for them, their, their cowardliness, Jesus wants to turn that into the different kind of fear. And it, and it does. Because they are struck. They're cowardly, but now they're struck by him with awe and reverence that they are just mega awe, mega phobos, mega struck by the, the wonder and strength and power of Jesus. That they're terrified of this, of this person that they thought was a person only. And now they're starting to see is God himself in front of them. But they still don't totally get it. And I think that sometimes for us, we want God to work in our lives. We want God to show up. We want God to change us. We want God to be present in our lives. But actually, if he did, we'd be terrified. Because you know what? Everything's going to change when God shows up. You're not going to stay on the same comfortable path. You're not going to just stay on everything being about you, the worship of self, But now we have to transition to just actually worshiping him and following him fully. Our life completely changing for him. And maybe that also includes his supernatural power and presence showing up. The Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Do you know today is actually the day of Pentecost. Today is that day in the liturgical calendar. Today is the day of Pentecost where we would celebrate when the Holy Spirit showed up for those first uh, members, the disciples and the members of the early church. He shows up and he comes with wind and fire. And it's just pretty, I mean, at some level you could be terrified in that moment, right? That now everything is changing for them. Their lives are radically different, but they have the power of the Holy Spirit now dwelling within them. And they're going and living these radical lives that are also radically like difficult in a lot of ways, and they're going out and doing that. Everything has changed because God has showed up. And now they, you know, we think we want God's comfort. (laughs) God might not be wanting to only give you comfort. He will comfort you in your troubles, but then he's also going to say, all right, let's go. You know, don't be a coward anymore. Let's step up and let's go see what I will do in you and through you. And, and, and the thing is, is that maybe God should terrify you in some way. If he truly is God, the God of the universe, creator of all things. But I, I think of this as, when I think of this fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord's used, actually the, the speaker at Man Camp was actually talking about the fear of the Lord. And it's like in the Old Testament, something like, 60, 70 times in the Old Testament as a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs, right? This awe, this kind of awe and wonder and fear that leads us to obedience and followership of of God and being willing to do whatever he would want us to do because of who he is. And I think about this fear and it's kind of, um, I, I think about, uh, a, a huge, strong man, a man that's just huge, buff, kind of, I mean, kind of like me, right? Like just huge, muscular man, uh, very tall, uh, strong. And then he's got this little toddler girl, this little toddler girl, very small, just barely walking, right? And this huge man, just this strength and raw power within him. And this little girl's tiny, just looking up with these big eyes. And really, this man has the power and capacity for great destruction if he wanted to, right? In the life even of this little girl. But this little toddler just looks up to the man 
with big eyes and reaches out, you know, reaches out her arms. Hold me. Or as my kids said, hold you. Because <laughs> we would say, you want me to hold you? Hold you, right? But like and this little baby to this huge, strong, powerful man would hold you because she doesn't have fear of him in the negative sense because even though he has all this capacity for power and destruction, he grabs her up with love and holds her tight in his arms. These arms that can just could tear her apart, honestly. But because of love, because he's the father, there's this great care and love. And I think at some level there, there's this in our relationship to God. All analogies are going to break down at some point. But there's this sense that he is our great, strong, powerful father. And we're a little bit scared of what he's capable of. But we also know that his love is so great for us that he wraps us up in his arms. And the thing is, is that we can get really caught up when we think of this whole cowardly thing. Why are you so cowardly? I think we could start to get caught up in a kind of an earning. We have to earn his love. But the beauty of his love is his love is self-sacrificial. His love is, is all giving. And then he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us grace. The gospel is this message, this good news that is not only changing us once, but continuing to change us throughout our lives, that we live according to that good news of him, that our identity is now in Christ, that we are chosen, we are beloved, we are courageous because of him. We have all of that just in our identity with him. And so now that, that fear is only awe and wonder and worship, right? So why are you afraid? Am I afraid? What kind of, am I cowardly or am I in awe of him? Reflect on that question. We got to keep going. But then the last one is, do I have faith? Do I have faith in that kind of God, right? That loving father that has given us his spirit, that has given us grace, that my identity is in him. Do I actually have faith in that being true and him being who he is, powerful enough to calm those storms and loving enough to, to be with us in the midst of it. And these disciples, he's just like, do you still have no faith? You've seen me heal people. You've seen me cast out demons. You've heard me teaching. I mean, this is, this is a turn, though. This is a kind of a bigger story. This gets kind of crazy with calming a storm. Do you still have no faith? They, they don't. They don't, and they still won't. More of this is coming, okay? More failure, more doubt, more struggle, uh, lack of faith. It's really throughout these disciples, we will see a pattern of them not getting it, failing, and not understanding. But Jesus is, is working, but he does, he calls them out for it as well. You know, and I, I have to recognize that in myself, where I know that I've been healed. I know I've seen demons cast out of people. I've seen God transform people's lives, but I still struggle with doubt sometimes, right? Or I wonder if what's God going to do next, right? What's God going to do now? Is he going to show up now? Is he always showing up? Is he always there? Or does he only show up when something I like happens? You know, like that's where kind of I think our doubt can creep in when we start to even attach are like the results that we want and even the pattern of him doing things in the way that we want 
him too. And we still need to be reminded of that. And so that's where Mark's invitation to all of us is this. All right, he says, go on. Wake Jesus up. Pray to him in your fear. Pray to him in your anger. But don't be surprised when he turns to you as the storm subsides in the background. And he says, when are you going to get some real faith? The rebuke's still there. I don't want to just put a pretty bow on top of it. It's there. we got to like lean into that rebuke, okay, for us. Where are we in the midst of that rebuke? What is God trying to do in us with that? Are we cowardly? Do we still have no faith? Do we think Jesus isn't there or won't do something in us? Or even do we not believe that we're under attack by the enemy? The way these disciples, they, their lack of faith was partially, I think, in the sense that they didn't believe that was happening even with spiritual attack. And that when Jesus comes and he does this radical thing, like they're maybe thinking still, we got to turn back. But Jesus says, no, 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 there's no turning back. We're going to the other side. I've calmed this storm because we've got work to do. I've calmed this storm because we're going to see even more radical things happen. And we're going to see the gospel go to all. And so for us, how are we saying, God, no, 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 I, I want you to work in the way I want you to work. I want you to make things the way I want you to make them. I want to have this life be the way I want this life to be. And, and you know, he's got radical mission for us. And I think the enemy wants to divide us. The enemy wants us to lose sight of our mission. The enemy wants us to think that it's about us, worship of self, when it is about the worship of him and him alone and the mission that he has sent us on to see the gospel go out to all the nations and all our neighbors. So do we still have no faith in that? It's important for us to reflect on this and respond to it and respond honestly. And so I want to encourage us as we're going to have a, a time now of worship and singing and even just a little time of kind of silent reflection. And just in your bulletin, there's some space there for you to write. And to even just consider writing a letter of, of trust to God about how you respond to these. And that might be a lack of trust or a message of trust. So let me pray for us and let's respond to that. And after you have a chance to reflect and do that, I just want you to know too that the prayer points will be available we have a chance to come and receive communion at the tables around the room as well. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, in these moments where there is a rebuke from you in your word, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us eyes and ears to receive that honestly and truly. I pray that it won't lead us to, I don't know, just feeling down, but to recognize that we have your spirit within us. You've given us grace. Mercy we don't deserve. I pray we'd feel that grace in the moment of rebuke. Because we don't deserve it, but you still give it. I pray, Lord, that we would see our identity in you, Lord. And not in our failings. But we would know ourself. And that would help us know you more too, God. Speak to us today. 
In Jesus' name.